or in Haggai. Remember, not Haggai, Haggai. That was, I uh, won't go through that again. Uh, but the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament, if you can't find that and you're not quick with an index, find Matthew and flip back three books and you'll find your way there to the prophet Haggai. You know, it's hard to see the, the a cause and effect relationship between some things. Maybe just if you are ill-instructed, it can be hard to recognize those things. I don't remember what brought it up, but I told the girls a story this, this week. I was in college, uh, needed to pull an all-nighter reading a book due the next day. And however many hundreds of pages needed to be read in order to get that grade mark. You guys remember that from college? It's like there's that reading threshold happening in grad school too. And as the semester goes later and the nights go later, you start to think like, well, you know, if 100 pages is worth one point, what's, a, what's an extra hour or two of sleep worth? You start to evaluate that. But I needed to read through all of this book and I have pretty bad seasonal allergies and in northeast Wisconsin, with all the pine trees and the change of season, it was, it was just miserable. Uh, so I decided to take some allergy medicine uh, along with staying up all night, and so I chose Benadryl. Uh, yeah, see, you know. I did not know. Uh, I did learn. Uh, walking up and down the hallways, trying to everything drastically to stay away, cold showers and whatnot, to try to read this book after I'd essentially taken a sleeping pill. I did figure that out uh, after the fact, talking to some friends um, there are other cause and effect relationships that we, we can figure out, we cannot figure out. I recall a uh, shoulder strain that, that I had. It might have been this arm, and I couldn't, couldn't figure out exactly what it was causing. It was not, not a lot of pain, but just periodic. I talked to, uh, to Dr. Brett about it, and he said, how, how do you sleep at night? I said, oh, I sleep like this, my arm up. He said, well, you need to stop doing that. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, my arm feels fine now. So, you know, cause and effect, sometimes you don't learn until after the fact what exactly has been taking place that's been causing uh, the trouble that you're going through. Uh, Haggai, we're going to read, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, let's hear the word of the Lord through the prophet in his word. I hope you'll follow along with me. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. There's a problem uh, that we have in this passage. There's a result of the problem. There's a solution to the problem. That's the progress we're going to see through this. A problem, the result of the problem, and then the solution. Uh, first, the problem. The problem was that the house of the Lord was in ruins. Read that in a number of different places here. And uh, if you're lacking context on this, I, I would just beg you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. I gave a whole sermon to the context of this so that we don't take too much time with this. But the people are back from exile to Babylon. Uh, when Babylon came and conquered them, they destroyed the temple. So now the people are back in the land after uh, suffering under the chastising hand of the Lord. They began to rebuild the temple and then they stopped. And so it remained unfinished as life went on 
in Jerusalem. In order to understand what the big deal is about this problem, we really need to understand the importance of the temple. So the, the house of the Lord is in ruins, and, but, but why is that a big deal? It's described as the house of the Lord. Uh, this is one specific building. That's what the temple was. One specific building that had been approved by God to be his dwelling place among his people. Note, note all the aspects of that. It wasn't like Moses said, or David said, or Solomon said, or, or uh, Zerubbabel or Joshua said, hey, you know what? Let's, let's have a building, right? God had said that he would dwell among his people in this one place, Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. So before a a permanent building, there was a tent. It was a tent whose design was given to Moses directly from God. Every part of its design was specified. You could read about that in Exodus chapter 25, uh, chapters 25 through 31. And here's what God promised regarding the tabernacle, or it's also called the sanctuary. Exodus 25 verse 8. God says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. They all lived in tents at that point. Uh, It was even specified where every tribe's tents were to be. And all of the tents were outside. It It was a great picture. If you looked down, you'd see all these spokes coming out. There was one tent in the center. It was the tent where God was to be worshiped. Dwell not just in the center of all your tents, but that's a picture that God had made his dwelling among his people. Later in Exodus 29, God said, there at this tabernacle, at this tent, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And once the tabernacle had been constructed, following those plans, we read in Exodus chapter 40, the cloud, which was the manifestation of the presence and glory of God, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. God in a special, God who dwells in heaven and fills heaven and earth is not contained by any of them, had made a local manifestation of his presence, visible right in the middle of his people in this one place. When the kingdom had been established, David uh, had built a house for himself, conquered Jerusalem, developed it as his own personal capital city, and he had built a nice palace for himself. Every king does. Yet he was bothered, David was bothered, because the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, was still being housed in a tent. All of God's people had been in tents, and God's presence had been in a tent. And now David had settled and had built a palace for himself. And yet God still dwelt in this temporary tent, this tabernacle. So God wanted to build a temple for God, a permanent dwelling place. He did not allow David to do that, but he did allow David's son Solomon to do that. Here's what God said as, as Solomon is making plans to fulfill his father David's uh, dream and plan to build this temple. Here's how, what God spoke to Solomon about that. Now, the word of the Lord, this is 1 Kings 6. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, it's that covenant faithfulness that we talked about a little bit last week, then I will establish my word with you and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. So the promise made about the tabernacle, God makes again, God renews about this temple that would be built. And then later at the dedication of the temple, probably one of my favorite stories that we read uh, in the Old Testament, God's Solomon prays to consecrate the temple. Uh, There's sacrifices and uh, trumpets and choirs. I I cannot imagine a, a greater feast day in all of, all of history, to be honest. I, and God's fire came down from heaven. It consumed the altar. The cloud of God, the presence of God's glory comes. It fills the temple and the priests couldn't even get inside to do their jobs. It's God's glory manifesting himself as he uh, did that, descending visibly onto this temple. God in all of his glory dwelling in the temple in the midst of his people. How amazing that is. 
How amazing it was that the glory of the Lord had filled the temple, the tabernacle. What privilege and promise this was for the nation of Israel that God dwelt among them. How devastating it must have been to hear the prophet Ezekiel prophesy that the glory and presence of God had left the temple and had actually left the city. Ezekiel has this picture early on. I think it's in Ezekiel uh, either 1 or 10. I had the reference. I didn't mark that down. You could read that, uh, where it, it, that cloud is supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, and it leaves, and it sort of stops and looks back, and then it leaves to the courtyard, and it stops and looks back, and it leaves the city. And if you, if you, if you followed with that, tabernacle and you followed with the temple and Solomon, the weight of the glory of God leaving the city of Jerusalem is significant. Because of their sin and their covenant unfaithfulness, God's presence was no longer with his people. And then as if to emphasize that reality, the temple was then destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, raised to the ground stripped of its riches and burned to ashes. But then later, God reveals to that same prophet, God reveals to Ezekiel that the temple would be rebuilt. And the glory of the Lord, that cloud, would return once again into the city, into the temple, and would fill that. God would once again dwell in the midst of his people. So as the remnants of exiles, they returned to Jerusalem, the first thing that they did, they rebuilt the altar, and they began to rebuild the temple. You can read about that in Ezra, <clears throat> excuse me, Ezra chapter 3. As New Testament Christians, New Covenant believers, it can be hard for us to grasp the significance of one building being so significant for our worship of God. After all, where we worship doesn't really matter. Our body here, uh, what was Randolph Street Valley Campus, now Risen King, we have gathered for worship in an elementary school gym, in a rented community building, in the upstairs loft of a restaurant, that was a fun day, at a picnic shelter in a state park, and then here at this church building. At least five different places, uh, not to mention the times we combined gathering and we're at Randolph Street. We've worshiped in all sorts of different places. I've tried to emphasize to you that the church... Uh, isn't a place, it's a people. Thank you. The church isn't a place. The church is a people. If we couldn't meet here for whatever reason, we would just meet somewhere else. In one sense, it's no big deal. There's some logistical issues to it. Uh, But we would. It's fine. Because we could still be the church. All of that is true. But it's true now. Right? It's, it's New Testament, New Covenant true that where we worship, the physical location doesn't really matter that much. Since Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the priesthood and he fulfilled the sacrifices and he fulfilled the temple, see the book of Hebrews, we have come to live under what Jesus promised to the woman at the well in John 4. You familiar with that? I hope you are. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in a Samaritan location outside of Jerusalem, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's kind of this ongoing debate at that time, like which is the right place? It's like, well, it was Jerusalem. Like, debate solved. But Jesus is like, it's, I'm not just here, to, I'm not here to, to debate that. I actually want to point you to something more. Neither here nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. But the hour is coming, here's the point, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, and we could say, and not just at a particular building. There's more to worship than that. And here's the really significant point. We read that. I hope that, that that's, you understand the aspect of that. But here's the point that I want you to understand. The promise spoken by Jesus in that passage had not been written yet and was not in effect for God's people in 520 BC when Haggai is writing. 
Okay? John 4 isn't just after Haggai, like in your Bible. Like it happened after Haggai by like 550 some odd years. Uh, in case you're wondering and you don't have a footnote, the second year of Darius in six months on the first day is like August 29th, 520. So we almost timed this series really, really well, but almost. But the people... The Israelites, God's people in 520, in the book of Haggai, back from exile in Jerusalem, they could not worship wherever they wanted, rather than at the temple. The sacrifices in the priesthood and the temple had not yet been fulfilled. They were still fully in effect for faithful followers of God. See, your access to God, my access to God, permanently available anywhere because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, our priest and our sacrifice, right? That happened 2,000 years ago, once for all time, for all of his people. So we don't offer any other sacrifices, but if they wanted access to God prior to Christ, prior to that once for all fulfilling sacrifice, they wanted access to God. They needed to come to the temple. They needed to hand over their sacrifices to the priest who would offer it on their behalf. They couldn't just offer it on their own, They couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They needed to follow what God had said in his law. Now, for us, God dwells in us by his spirit in a unique new covenant way on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we think about temple, a whole sermon about temple, we're not going to do that. But Paul and Peter both write in the New Testament about God's people now being God's temple, right? We could take these promises and, I, and they point us forward, like what, what the, the people, God's people in Haggai, what they were experiencing and their thoughts about that should really just drive us forward to, to really how much better we have it in the new covenant on this side of the cross, all of those things being fulfilled and how that allows for the spread of the gospel across the world. As much as you might love coming to this building for our weekly gatherings, I love them too. I'm here a lot. I think I'm here more than I'm anywhere else, actually. Uh, We have a very different experience than David did when it comes to worship and associating that with a particular building. I mean, if you're here on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock in this room, uh, it's far less interesting (laughs) than it is at Sunday uh, at 11 o'clock or at 1030. We have a very different experience than David would have with the tabernacle or looking forward to aspects of the tent. why David would write Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, right? We have that affection and we have that relationship. We have that presence and access anywhere, Whereas there was a physical proximity that would actually get him closer to the presence of God, right? So there's a big difference. We have to identify that uh, in order for this text to make sense. So worship for us can happen anywhere, anytime, but for the, the Israelites in Haggai's day, worship centered on the temple. In other words, the temple's a big deal. Yet 16 years after they had arrived back in the land and laid the foundation for the temple, 16 years later, it was still unfinished. Like I mentioned last week, it wasn't like slow progress was being made. The project had stalled dust and rust collecting on tools. Nothing was happening. Importance of the temple, but we also then see the excuses of the people. This is what God addresses first. You imagine two Israelites walking along through Jerusalem, discussing life and farming and their children. And as they kind of meander through the city, maybe heading to a market or something like that, they, they come across the temple ruins. And they both stop and they just stare for a while, both of them recognizing that this is not how things ought to be. And they look at each other and they sigh and they say, well, the timing just isn't right for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's just, it's just not the right time. You know, there's so much going on, and uh, let's see, uh, Hannah's pregnant again, and, and my cows are they're always hungry. I got to go find more grass for my cows or for my sheep, and yeah, business hasn't been good this year. I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to come help, but I, phew, timing's just, mm, 
this month's just not good for me. Next month's not looking good either. This has been the excuse given by God's people for 16 years. Why wasn't the timing right? Well, perhaps it's because the political situation was so volatile. There were armies passing through this territory all the time. There were kingdoms vying for power. The rebellions coming up, Persian army come, putting them back down. There are non-Israelites living in the land, opposing the rebuilding of the temple. With all these things happening around them, it's just it's too difficult. It just, the, the timing, it just obviously wasn't right. They didn't have time to rebuild the temple with this volatile political situation. Or maybe it was because of a weak economic situation. So much of the land had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Everything needed to be rebuilt. Everything that needed to be rebuilt required funds, required materials, funds and materials they really didn't have. On top of that, their crops weren't coming in the way that they were, that they had expected. Nothing was coming easily for them back in their land. They had to work even harder to just scratch out a living. I mean, they barely had enough to eat. They barely had enough to drink. They they barely had enough to wear. They definitely didn't have extra resources or time to set aside for rebuilding the temple. This was, there wasn't enough for both themselves and God. So God would just need to wait a little bit longer. But once things sort of settled out, right? Once, once it settled down, then, then we would do the work of the Lord. I mean, the people had all sorts of excuses. You know what they say about excuses, though? They're like armpits. Everybody has them, and they all stink. How easily we can come to be convinced of the legitimacy of our own excuses and how defensive we become when our excuses are questioned or even we think that they're going to be questioned and how shoddy our excuses normally are. So the excuses of the people are then met by the response of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord responds to the people's excuses. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Quote, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Proverbs talks about how important it is to hear both sides of a story or both sides of an argument before you pick sides, right? Wisdom doesn't just hear one side and be like, oh, that's, that's where I am. Wisdom hears both sides. You know, if we had only listened to the people's excuses, uh, we might agree that the timing wasn't right. Like, wow, political and economic pressures and all these type of things. Whew, you're right. It isn't the time to rebuild the Lord's temple. But we've only heard one side, and then we hear the Lord's side. The Lord speaks and gives us some very important information. The timing wasn't right to rebuild the Lord's house, but the timing was right for them to build their own houses. God describes where the people were living as, as they're living in paneled houses. There's some question as to exactly what this described. The, the word finds its way in a few different places in Scripture. In some places, this type of wood paneling uh, is a sign of wealth and decadence. Special uh, wall paneling that they would have inside to show their wealth. So it could be that the people were actually making improvements to their own houses and living in luxury while they failed to engage in the work of rebuilding the Lord's house. The paneling could also just be like a roof paneling. And God's pointing out that they have finished their own homes, making sure they're dry and comfortable, while failing to finish the walls and roof of the temple. I mean, some of you might not like tent living, but I think you would prefer living in a tent than to living in a house that has no roof. God's situation right? He's not put out as in like, oh no, he's cold, right? He doesn't need the temple, but yet their their neglect of this showed their neglect of, of honor to the Lord. He was actually worse off than he had been with the tabernacle, as it were. Are their own dwelling places more important than God's dwelling place? They had chosen personal comfort and safety over honoring the Lord and completing his house. And while we might understand their priorities, While we might agree with their priorities, God did not agree with their priorities. They were not pursuing his priorities. And we see things like this in our own lives too, in our own culture, in our own day. I mean, someone might say, oh, I don't have time for church every week. But that same person might say, but I do have time to go fishing or watch football. Someone might say, I don't have time to read my Bible every day. 
Uh, but I do have time to scroll endlessly on my phone. I don't have time to meet with another believer for prayer, but, but I do have time to watch just a few episodes of my favorite show every night. I don't have time to pray with my children or teach them the scriptures, but I do have time to drive them to 17 different sports practices, dance classes, and music lessons every night. And we could go much further with examples like these. Maybe it's not a question of time as much as it is a question of money. I don't have enough money to support the ministry of the church, but, but I do have enough money to get a new car every year. Can't, can't drive last year's model. I don't have enough money to be generous to my neighbor, but I do eat out eight times a week. I don't have enough money to support a missionary, but I do have six different streaming services alongside my advanced satellite TV programming with 9,000 channels and nothing worth watching. What do we have time and money for? Shows our priorities. What did the Israelites have time and money for? Themselves. But not for the work of God. Not, not yet. Time's not right. And in verse 5, we hear God's prophetic warning. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Another translation says, think carefully about your ways. Pay attention to what's happening in your life right now. And he says it again in verse 7, consider your ways. I want you forever, when you think of Haggai, I want you to think of the phrase, consider your ways. We're so busy these days. We rarely stop to evaluate our lives, our habits, or our priorities. We just rush thing to thing to thing, never really stopping to think, to consider, to ponder carefully our lives. Apparently, this is not a modern American problem. It was apparently an ancient Israelite problem as well. And then some 500 years later, it was also a problem for Jesus' audiences, he addresses the same uh, kind of inward-focused, that by myopic, right? Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Gentiles, unbelievers, seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Don't have your priorities first. There's a contrast. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need, these things will be added to you. Your Father will take care of you. Seek Him first, His kingdom, or for Haggai's audience, His house above your house, His priorities above your priorities. Well, make His priorities your priorities. What was the result of this problem? The result was divine chastisement inflicted on the people. When God told the Israelites to consider their ways, he didn't stop there. He went on to explain to them what had been happening in their lives. Like I said last week, sometimes a prophet spoke about the future. This is what's going to happen. And sometimes he spoke about the past. Hey, this is what did happen. And at other times, and this is what's happening here, sometimes a prophet spoke very specifically about what God was doing in the present. This is kind of like, this, is, this started in the past and it's continued into the present. We're going to peel back the curtain. I'm going to tell you, God's going to tell you, what has been happening in your lives. This is what Haggai does here. Verse 6, you've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, never have enough. Drink, never have your fill. It says the same thing about clothing, uh, even their, their wages. How frustrating that would be to put coins or something in your pocket, find out it had holes in it, right? Or a purse that has something torn out on the bottom. Have you ever talked to someone who's gone through the same difficulty as you and they describe exactly how you, you've been feeling and thinking? So you hear, it's like, oh, this and this and this. And it's like, oh, and then you thought this, right? You're like, that is what I thought. I imagine that's how this, this felt here when Haggai speaks. It's like, you've sown much. And they're like, yeah, we have. Goodness. Sowing and sowing and sowing. And it's like, well, the birds are going to eat some and some aren't going to sow. We just got to try to dump as much as we have. Do the extra hard work of tilling. Right? N nothing comes. 
When we try to eat, it's like, oh, this will be enough food for my family. It's like we eat and we're still hungry. It's like we put, can't put on enough clothes, enough blankets to get warm. It's just like everything. It's just it's so unsatisfying. It's like everything falls short that I'm pursuing. I'm working so hard for. I can't catch a break. Year after year after year, things don't go my way. It, that reminds me of uh, the Little House books. Leanne was reading the little, little House in the Big Woods, I think, is first, reading those books to the girls, and we had this audio tape we borrowed from the library and just wore that thing out, just listening to it all the time in the car, and I don't know why, idiot, sometimes, there's like, well, I don't want to listen to those stories. Those are girls' stories. And so I tried to ignore Little House in the Big Woods, tried to ignore Little House on the Prairie, uh, got to Plum Creek, right? Was that, that, was that the one? We got to the banks of Plum Creek, and they like live in this house under a hill, built into the side of a hill. That was pretty cool. Uh, and a cow fell through the top, and I think that's on whatever that trip was. My ears started perking up. And then I started listening a little bit more, not showing it. God, this doesn't make any sense. Why? Because they are interesting stories. You should, you should read them. Uh, and I start listening to everything that Pa's doing to try to provide for his family. And he takes out a loan, and he sews extra. I could have some of this, this wrong, but I'm excited for Pa because it's finally, it's finally going to come in. And he sews, and there's all this wheat, and he had taken the loan, and he's going to pay it off. It's going to be great. And then these stupid grasshoppers, they come and they eat it all. And I'm just like, what? Sick of these grasshoppers. Can't this guy catch a break? And then I took over reading the stories from then on. Like, Leanne didn't get to read a single other one. Tendy the girls. And Pa never caught a break. I mean, if he had, then, you know, there wouldn't have been books. Right? That's just how it works. Um, you just can't catch a break. Have you ever feel like that? And maybe you start to be like, why is it that everything's so hard? And I think that the people here are just like, man, what is going on? Why? And then finally, Haggai steps up 16 years in and be like, guess what? I'm here to tell you why. It's because of the temple. Because the house of the Lord is in ruins and you've done nothing about it. Consider your ways. He goes back in verse 9 to talk about it again. You looked for much. Behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, the little that you did have, I just blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. And I have, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Did you hear the activity of the Lord in this? This wasn't accidental. This didn't just happen, right? He's just like, I blew it away, right? I called for the drought. I have been behind all of this. Your difficulty is, is evidence of my absolute sovereignty to bring covenant curses back on you yet again. All of this was promised back in Deuteronomy 28, inflicted on the people prior to the exile for centuries to try to get their attention. They get back, they're like, we're not going to be idolatrous anymore. It's like they learned half of the lesson. It's like, no, we're not going to worship idols but, but we're also not really going to commit to worshiping the Lord with all of our hearts, right? It's that, that half repentance, they, they, they stagnated. They actually just found another way to sin. God is exercising his absolute sovereignty in chastising his people. It is not hatred on God's part. You really need to hear that. God could have just left and been gone yet again. God could have wiped them out. But the fact that he brought that drought, the fact that he made life difficult for them was not God hating them. It was actually God loving them as a father loves his children and chastises them. That's what this is. This is discipline or divine chastisement to draw their attention to their sin and call them to repentance. In his definition of discipline, Jerry Bridges in the book Discipline of Grace it says, discipline inc includes all instruction, all reproof and correction, and all providentially directed hardships in our lives that are aimed at cultivating spiritual growth and godly character. 
We talk about God's sovereignty. We believe it in salvation, but have you forgotten the fact that that actually applies to everything else as well? King Solomon taught his son to think about chastisement and discipline wisely. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That passage is quoted in Hebrews 12 also. Discipline, chastisement, discipline is training. Discipline is training, and it could be for the purpose of pointing out that which is weak or lacking, or in this case, sinful. It could be for the purpose of of proving and strengthening what is strong, preparing us for future struggles. All of God's interaction with us is discipline. Discipline is training. So here's what we need to understand. Here's the quote from, from Proverbs on that. Here's what I want you to understand. Not everything hard or bad in our lives is directly caused by a specific sin. This is not the lesson that we need to take away from Haggai. Not everything hard or bad in our lives is caused directly by a specific sin. We can go to Job, right? God's evaluation of Job, most righteous man walking on the earth, yet it was then he suffered more than really anybody else had. That was not a chastisement to correct him. That was a, that was a proving. What about the man who was born blind in Jesus' day? The disciples were like, oh, this is because of sin. And Jesus is like, this is not because of sin. Not his sin, not his parents' sin. But this difficulty, this was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, could have been a a severe eye problem of sorts, potentially. He talks about it uh, to the Corinthians. And he wanted it to be removed for the sake of ministry, and God kind of peels back what's going on. He's like, actually, this, this is from me, and this is to keep you from getting too proud. And so Paul says, well, I'll glory in my infirmities then. Because when I'm weak, Christ is made strong. See, not every difficulty is in response to a specific sin. James chapter 1, the trying of our faith counted all joy when you experience trials of various kinds because those trials, those difficulties, hardships, sadness, all sorts of different things that that could fall into, those things are for our good producing endurance. So not everything hard or bad in our lives is directly caused by a specific sin. However, this is the message of Haggai. Some hard things in our lives, some suffering, some difficulties are God's response to specific sins. We can really easily swing off one way or the other, right? Everything's bad because anything that's bad is because God's against me. And we could look at Job and be like, that's not what happens. That's not how God interacts. That's what his friends thought and they were wrong. So we can overcorrect and be like, oh, okay, so nothing bad in my life, no difficulty is ever in response to sin. And we have Haggai to kind of course correct, keep us in the middle. It's like, no, not everything, but some things. That's exactly what's happening here in Haggai. And then difficulty and suffering in response to sin, think of the death of David's child because of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some believers in Corinth were using the Lord's table to flaunt their wealth and feast with their rich friends while the poor believers were being pushed to the side and ignored. And God, or Paul explains God's response to this sin. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, some difficulty, some hardship is God's chastisement and discipline about a specific sin, and it was the case here in Haggai. Some is, some isn't. Maybe you're sick because of your sin. Maybe you're just sick. Maybe your bills keep piling up and there never seems to be enough money to pay them because you are withholding or hoarding that which you should be giving generously. Or maybe things are just expensive. Maybe your business or job feels like you're pounding your head against a wall because you're working too many hours and neglecting your family or other responsibilities. Or maybe your job is just hard. 
the question that naturally arises from this is, which is it? (laughs) Why am I sick? Why is it hard? Why the bills? Why the difficulties? Why the suffering? Is this God correcting me because of my sin or is it not? Is it just, right? Is this in response to something? Correcting? Or, or is this trying to prepare me for something else? And there's a both and, but it's like, what is God doing in my life right now? And I cannot answer that question for you. I am not a prophet as Haggai is a prophet. I have not received a, a direct specific message from the Lord about, uh, about Mike or about Vernon or about Chad or about uh, David or about whoever, right? I have not received that. About hidden details of your life, but that's Okay. And you don't need to be left wondering how you should respond. You aren't left without guidance. I'll give another illustration. Imagine that I eat a bag of Doritos every night, not the snack bag, family bag, every night. And then I end up in the hospital with appendicitis. And while I'm in the hospital recovering, I think about my health and I realize I should not eat a bag of Doritos every night. That would be a wise decision even though it isn't really related to the reason that I'm in the hospital. But if I eat a bag of Doritos every night and end up in the hospital with stomach ulcers and severe cholesterol problems, and then I decide to stop eating so many Doritos, that would be more connected. But either way, I should stop eating so many Doritos, and that is hypothetical, by the way, unless we're camping, in which case, down in the whole bag of Doritos. (laughs) A wise faithful follower of Christ should daily consider their ways and prayerfully ask the Lord to reveal patterns of sin and unfaithfulness. And difficulty should drive us to ask that question, Lord, is this, is this you correcting me? Here, here's the point that I want to make. Like Whether it is a, a direct cause and effect or not, like whatever sin comes to your mind when you are evaluating that, you should repent of, right? Like if, if, you're, if you have a sinful pattern and the difficulty brings your attention to it, like maybe those things are just happening at the same time and it's not God specifically chastising you from that. And maybe that means that the repentance happens and you change and the situation doesn't. You'd be like, oh, that wasn't it, right? But you repented. Like maybe that wasn't the case. Do you see what I'm saying? This is like, because there's no guarantee that as we'll find like their situation changes, we actually don't have the guarantee that with repentance, our situation will change. We actually have promises of difficulties throughout scripture and throughout the New Testament for these type of things. But if you come, become aware of a wrong priority and of a particular sin, you know, I guarantee you what God wants you to do is to repent, right? Use whatever those situations are to grow in wisdom, Reminds me of, again, of Proverbs, where this is like the fool, and you can break rod after rod after rod on his back, and he's never going to learn. But the wise man will learn by watching him go through that. You know, maybe your difficulty has been caused by the sin that you are thinking of, and maybe it hasn't. But we pray with the psalmist, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So maybe the difficulty is caused by sin. Maybe it's not. Whatever sin the Holy Spirit convicts you of as you go through that process, whatever sin is drawn to your attention, maybe now, maybe this, this week, which has just been my ongoing prayer as we consider Haggai for myself, for our church, for you individually. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to poke at a couple things and see what the Lord uses, but I don't know. But he does. And since I don't know the details of your life, like if you're right now kind of like convicted of a particular sin, it's not me convicting you. I trust it's the Lord showing that to you. So pay attention, consider your ways and repent. And that's the solution. The solution is to demonstrate repentance. How are God's people in Haggai's day supposed to respond? Tells them in verse 7 and 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, and then go up to the hills, and bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They needed to admit their sin and take specific steps to correct the problem. 
So I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the same thing in each of us and help us to see, and it's really, it's not has, have my priorities replaced God's priorities? I mean, really, let's just be honest about our sin. They have. That's a constant need for us to be correcting. It's not like, oh, no, I took care of that. Like three years ago, I made sure that all of God's priorities were my priorities. Everything's been great since then. It's like, you're really blind. Like, you're, you're missing something. It's probably big. Uh, so we're supposed to be living in this type of repentance. And, I, and the first step in this would just be to identify what the wrong priorities are. Maybe they come out here. Maybe you're like, I, I really can't. Like, I know that if I say I have no sin, I'm lying, and the truth isn't in me. I, I want to confess my sin and forsake it and find mercy and forgiveness. I just don't know what it is. Well, then ask the Lord. And when we've identified the wrong priorities, that's the first step toward repentance. They had chosen to take care of their own houses rather than to rebuild God's house. So what is the Lord convicting you about? And as you consider your ways, ask the Lord to help you see what you are pursuing that you should stop and what you are not pursuing that you should start. And the second step to that is to confess those wrong priorities to the Lord as sin. Don't despise his chastisement. Don't, don't throw a fit or, or have a temper tantrum that God would deal with you as a loving father deals with his children, bringing difficulty into your life to remind you of the things that need to be changed. Don't ignore his warnings. That's another way that we can despise that. Like, no, nope, not me. No, I'm not going to change or that can't be it. When you see from his word that you've been wrong, admit that without delay. And then I, I already quoted it a little bit, got ahead of myself, but as you then confess that, as you admit that you are wrong, remember the promise of the gospel, not just for unbelievers, but for all believers, all, all time in our lives. If we confess, he will forgive. It's not an if, that's not a maybe. That's not a dragged out, delayed, right? We're going to come to the table here in a minute. This table proclaims that there is forgiveness for all who will seek it in Jesus' name, whether that's the first time or the thousandth time this week. Christ has paid the price for your sins. Confess, forsake, and be renewed in that mercy. We identify the wrong priorities, we confess or admit that it has been sin, and then we work to make changes, changes that are for his glory. It's never enough to know what's wrong or just to feel bad about what's wrong. Oh, I'm doing this and I shouldn't, and I feel really bad about it, or I'm not doing this and I should, and I feel really guilty about that. Like, wow, look at the Lord's house, and it hasn't been times. Like, oh, I really needed to do something about that. And, and God doesn't just say, wallow in guilt. He says, Get your axe and go to the woods. <laughs> like, go get the lumber that's needed. Do something about this. Work to make changes that are for his glory. Repentance is not complete if we only stop sinning. We must move in the other direction. And rather than take more wood as paneling for their own houses, they were supposed to take that wood to the Lord's house. This would then be pleasing to the Lord. This would be glorifying to him. You see, he says that right in the middle of verse 8. Look at it again. Why are they supposed to be doing this? Not just so that they would feel better, and honestly, not just so that their crops would come in. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's a very God-centered view of what's happening here. God has been dishonored, and God needs to be honored. And God is honored by our repentance. So his priorities are just that, his pleasure and delight in his glory, in his name, in his worship, and his kingdom. These are God's priorities. Are they yours? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, that reproves and corrects and instructs us. I pray your spirit would open our eyes to see um, which of our priorities are wrong. Mine, first, uh, as you have been, I pray you would continue to open my eyes to my sinfulness and grant me repentance and a change uh, as I seek to walk before you as a, as a man, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father.
please work in our midst right now and this week and through our study of Haggai and beyond. Help us to see, to learn, to be wise and humble. And thank you for the guarantee of forgiveness in Jesus' name through his death on the cross. Uh, Cause us now to rejoice and worship in that with with, uh, abundant gratitude, I pray. Amen. Come to uh, the Lord's table now and already introduced an aspect of that a little bit. Um, That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is yours, uh, your faith is in him, you have forgiveness in his name, not because you've done better, uh, but because he was perfect for you, uh, then this table is for you. And so he calls you to come, and we extend that call as a, as a church and as an eldership. You don't have to be a member at Risen King Church to come to the Lord's table. You need to be a member of, of his body, uh, one who believes in him. And as you come, um, it's, it's good to take time to, to reflect on uh, your own sinfulness. Yeah, I remember I used to uh, only think about that. And try to make sure I didn't want to die, right? I don't want to take the bread in the cup and then be killed like those people in Corinth. And so the whole time in the table, it's almost like trembling and wondering if there were any unconfessed sin and just really, really thinking about myself. Uh, if sin has come to your mind, then by all means, confess that to the Lord like right now as you come to the table, as you stand in the line and allow the bread and the cup that are given to be a reminder of the fact that you've been forgiven by the life and death of Jesus and you've been made new Right? Don't, don't let your sin keep you from the table unless you want the sin more than you want Jesus. If you want your sin more than you want Jesus, then don't you dare come forward. That's a serious, that's a serious thing. And if you're reminded of your sin and you feel the burden of your guilt, then the table is the place for you to be reminded that Jesus takes that away. Okay, so think about your sin. Think about Jesus. And then we look forward to the time when he comes. And so I'll pray again to give thanks. The deacons will uh, dismiss and will come to the table. We'll, We'll form a line in the center as you are dismissed. You'll each come to receive the element. Return to your seats. Uh, And then we'll partake together after everyone has a chance to do that, okay? Lord, thank you for uh, your body and blood shed on the cross, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to to the Lord, Um, a full and complete satisfaction for for our sins. Uh, Please use this time uh, to cleanse us, um, to convict us, and to... uh, Increase our certainty and love for Jesus and for his gospel, I pray. Amen.